Good morning, everyone. My name is Tana Marks, for those of you that don't know. I'm a member here at Redeemer. Today we're going to be reading from Mark, starting in Mark. Starting in Mark 1, 1 through 8, John the Baptist prepares the way. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance of forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Hey, um, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. My buddy Mason is back there ready to deliver. So he, do him a solid. If you need a Bible, he'll bring you one. <clears throat> Excuse me. Hey, Mason, when you're done with the Bibles, could you bring me my coffee too, please, buddy? What a guy. Man, Mason, as well as Paisley and Parker, have been serving every single Sunday morning, setting the visitor cards and the pens out and packing the uh, kids' bags with papers and suckers and bringing the preacher his coffee. What a guy. Um, Thank you, Mason. Thank you, Paisley and Parker. Thank you all who are serving so faithfully to keep this thing afloat. We're very excited to be in the Fun Dome uh, here this morning. Hey, if you're new to this church, if you're new to church in general, if you're new to Christianity, uh, one thing that I think is so very important and so often neglected is Christians reading, understanding, and applying their Bibles. I believe that it's the primary way that God speaks to his church. I believe it's the primary way that God reveals his will to the church. And a lot of times we just completely neglect the reading of the scriptures. We completely neglect applying the scriptures. And so here at Redeemer Church, we're going to hold the word of God highly. We believe that the Bible is the word of God. And so because we believe that is true... That leads us to also believe that the Word of God, the Bible, is the only authority that we have as Christians that is perfect and without error. The Word of God needs to be central in our lives, and because of this, it's going to be central to everything that we do as a church. God has given us His Word as a gift, and man, we need to know it. We need to meditate on it. Because if you're not, you're not growing in Christ. You can't grow in Christ without the Bible. So my desire as, a, as your pastor is to constantly put the Word of God before you. So one way we're going to put this into practice is through what's called expository preaching. What that means is we're going to take one chunk of Scripture at a time, and let the Word of God speak for itself. Lord willing, when I'm up here, when any other uh, 
person is up here preaching, we're not up here offering you our opinions or what we think or what culture wants us to say. Hopefully we're going to be anchored in the text and allow the Holy Spirit to speak through and illuminate our hearts towards the gospel of Christ. And so I think we're going to accomplish this goal by preaching through books of the Bible one by one by one. My conviction uh, as your pastor is that if I'm faithful to give you a steady diet of the Word of God week after week after week, that through the ministry of the Word, God can and will grow your affections for Him. He'll grow your affections to love the Word. He'll grow your affections and your desires to love Him and to follow Him with all of your lives. We are going to be a church of the Word And so today, I'm very excited to begin walking through the gospel according to Mark with you. I realize that I missed a huge opportunity to call this series Mark Madness, uh, given what's going on. But that would have only been good for like six weeks. So uh, we're just going to call it the gospel according to Mark. Out of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Mark is probably my favorite. I have a few theological reasons, a few like professional ministry reasons why it's my favorite. And then there's one, uh, it's very amusing, it's an amusing, amusing personal reason. And when I tell you what that is, I'm going to reveal a lot about my sense of humor and a lot about my own immaturity as a person. So let me tell you the theological and professional reasons why I love this book first. Out of the four Gospels, it is the oldest. It was written 15 to 20 years after Jesus had ascended into heaven. And it's basically this guy, Mark, sitting down with one of Jesus' closest friends and disciples, the Apostle Peter. So knowing what we know about Peter, or what we're going to find out about Peter if you're new to the Bible, uh, was that he was not always the most faithful dude. He was not always the quickest to just demonstrate an overwhelming amount of faith prior to Jesus' death and resurrection, and even some moments after the resurrection, we see him in conflict over over some of the stuff surrounding what's going on with Christ. Like the book of Galatians, Paul and Peter actually have a kind of a come-to-Jesus moment uh, around the gospel. We're going to see Peter run a gambit of the faith journey in the book of Mark. He's going to go from not being a Christ follower to being a Christ follower and still being like a hothead, and then to a faithful Christ follower, and then back to being a coward to one of the greatest church planners that the world has ever known. And even in his failings, even in his wanderings, Jesus offers him grace and forgiveness over and over and over again. This book reveals a lot about the nature and character of God through Jesus Christ. And it is a beautiful picture of the love that God has for people. Secondly, we're going to see Jesus' great love for people that are kind of on the fringes and the margins of society. In this gospel, Jesus seems to always be on the move, going from place to place, town to town, house to house, teaching and interacting with people in need of love and in need of healing and ultimately in need of forgiveness. And as a guy who likes hanging out, like that's my spiritual gift, being around people and wanting to love and serve people the way that Jesus does, this portrayal of Jesus speaks really deeply to me. Finally, 
the amusing one, there are some things in the Bible that kind of make you go, hmm, that's interesting. So Mark, the writer of this gospel, he was not one of the 12 disciples, but church tradition would tell us like he was cousins with this guy named Barnabas who was one of the 12 disciples. So it's okay to assume that Mark knew who Jesus was. Mark was probably around Jesus quite a bit. And though Mark never mentions himself directly in the Bible, we do think he was probably there in the garden the night that Jesus was arrested. At the end of chapter 14, as Jesus is being arrested in the garden, the text says that there is a young man there in the garden, and he's pretty scantily clad. It says he's just wearing a linen cloth. And one of the guards goes to grab this scantily clad individual, and he sheds his linen cloth, and he takes off naked. Running through the garden. Sounds a lot like college. Just kidding. Um, this adds nothing spiritual to the book of Mark. It's just there, a verse in passing, randomly. Have you ever had the thought, like, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Jesus about this. I'm going to ask God about this. When I get to the kingdom and I bump into Mark, I'm going to say, hey, bro, were you the streaker? <laughs> Revealing everything you need to know about me. Anyways, I've been planning this series for three years, which is longer than I've been planning Redeemer Odessa. Uh, I'm just really excited to preach through the book of Mark and excited to dive in with you. And hopefully we have some consistent ongoing encounters with Jesus over the next 18 to 24 months. It's going to take us some time, so buckle up. It's going to be a lot of fun, Lord willing. But before we jump into today's text, let's, uh, let's pray and ask the Lord to reveal himself to us. Lord Jesus, we love you. Lord Jesus, we need you. Thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, I pray that you would do a work in us. Lord, show us our need for repentance. Lord, show us our need for humility. And Lord, help us to be grateful recipients of your grace this morning. Lord, we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So Mark 1.1 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. One thing that I love about this gospel is that his audience is made up of primarily Gentile Christians. These Gentile Christians are living in Rome. And when I say the word Gentile, what I mean is that Gentiles are not Jews. And this is important for us because it shows us that contrary to popular Jewish teaching, both then and now, that the dividing wall between people groups has been broken down. The dividing wall has been torn down. Because of the cross, we who are not Jews by birth now have access through faith in Christ to salvation in Christ. In Christ, there are no barriers between Jews and Gentiles, males and females, rich and poor. The cross has completely leveled the playing field, and it shows us that we are all sinners in need of grace. And this book is being written to encourage Gentile Christians just like us, and we can take some encouragement in it. And Mark comes out swinging here in verse 1. From the very beginning, he is taking some hard swings. In our English text, it may be hard to distinguish some of what's going on. 
uh, in verse 1. So let's break this verse down a little bit. It says, the beginning of the gospel. Mark is saying, this is how it starts. The word gospel means good news. And he's saying, this is where the good news about who Jesus is and what he has accomplished starts. And by using this word beginning, Mark is calling us all the way back to Genesis 1-1 where God created everything. He's calling us to remember that in the beginning God was there and now something new and exciting is taking place within salvation history. It is the good news about this guy. His name is Jesus. Jesus is the Greek word for the Hebrew name Joshua. Joshua means salvation, or God is salvation. And not only that, not only is this good news about the Christ, too. Not only is it good news about Jesus, it's good news about Jesus Christ. Christ means the Messiah, or God's anointed one. Mark is saying the long-awaited Savior Messiah is here to bring you salvation. And if that weren't good news enough, that through Jesus Christ, the Messiah bringing salvation is here, Mark goes even further by saying, and this guy's the Son of God. Mark is revealing to us that there is an unparalleled relationship between Jesus as God and God as Father, and Mark is making this confessional. If you claim to be a Christian... You cannot have God the Father without God the Son. There is a unity in the relationship. There is unity in mission and purpose. And Mark is confessing Jesus Christ as God and as Savior. He is both. God is not passive. God did not create the earth and sit back and hope that we would find our way back to him. No. God is active, and when sin destroyed what God had made good and perfect, God actively went and orchestrated the greatest rescue mission the world had ever seen by stepping down from heavenly perfection and pursuing people whose hearts are not inclined towards him. And he did this in love. So here we are at the beginning of this chapter of salvation history. Jesus is about to step into the public peer view, but before he does, Mark introduces us to this other guy. Mark 1-2 says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I, am sending, I send my messenger before your face. Who will prepare your way? The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. So 2020 was, was kind of a weird year, right? Can we all agree on that? Um, it was pretty chill for me. Like, this hadn't started, so uh, I just basically was hanging out with my wife and my kids and Julie quite a bit last year. There were some moments where, like, I would sit down in the middle of the day after checking the two emails that needed my attention, and uh, I'd turn the TV on purely out of boredom. I really love sports. March Madness is one of my, the greatest times of the year for me. I really love sports. And last year, I was so stoked that we were having Olympics, and then they got canceled. So I started watching reruns of UFC fights. Yeah, 
I'm not a huge UFC fan. I mean, it's entertaining to a point, but it was scratching an itch that I was feeling for not having sports. So these fighters, they all have these very elaborate walk-in themes. Smoke, lights, hand-picked songs, and they're all unique from one another. Like some guy was coming in strictly business, and these other guys were coming in in like sumo suits and costumes, just crazy. They were all unique from one another. But one thing all of these fighters had in common, though, was there was always some random dude walking in front of them. He was either showing off, like, the championship belt, or he was, like, hyping up the crowd, waving his arms up and down, like, trying to generate some excitement. All these fighters had a hype man. John the Baptist is Jesus' hype man. Just as an aside... When we refer to this John as John the Baptist, it's not the same John that wrote the Gospel of John. Rather, it's John, Jesus' cousin, and Baptist is not his denominational affiliation. Not that there's anything wrong with being a Baptist, those are my people, uh, but it is referring more to his occupation. So it's like, John is a Baptist, or John is a baptizer. So... John is Jesus' hype man. And here's one thing that sets Mark's gospel apart from the other, what's called synoptic gospels. Uh, Synoptic meaning same. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all called synoptic gospels. They kind of deal with the same period of time, the same work of Jesus. There's some things that are unique to each of them, but there's a lot of overlap. So here's one thing that sets Mark apart from Matthew and Luke. Matthew starts with genealogies, and Luke starts with a birth story of of Jesus. Mark starts with prophecy. Mark is not writing a biographical work on the life of Jesus. He is getting us directly to Jesus, pointing us to the Savior of the world as quickly and as often as possible. In Old Testament prophecy, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is where he starts his narrative. Several hundred years before this event that we're reading about took place, God promised that John the Baptist would go before Jesus and begin preaching and proclaiming that the rescuer had arrived. And this is super important for Mark's Gentile audience who didn't have our Old Testament scriptures the way the Jews of the day did. Mark is drawing our attention to the fact that God had preordained the time and the place where these things would occur. More importantly, when we see prophecy fulfilled in and around the person and work of Jesus, we can know with confidence that God is keeping his promises. There's this cultural war going on uh, among proper orthodoxy and liberal theology that says that there are two different natures of God. Like the God of the Old Testament is super angry, super unloving, unlovable, unapproachable, non-relational, and he's somewhere out there. Then there's this God of the New Testament that is some like omni-benevolent hippie type Jesus guy um, teaching about love and recycling because love is love and love always wins. And both of these things are wrong. What we see when we read the Bible as one linear story, the Old Testament is actually pointing forward to Jesus. 
Old Testament prophecy tells us that Jesus was part of the plan the whole time. God in his nature and character is all-knowing, he's all-powerful, and he's all-loving. And hear me, hear me, he is unchanging. And in our text today, we see this beginning to take place. Verses 2 and 3 show us that God had promised to send his forerunner before the Messiah. And verse 4 shows us that God has kept his promise. Let that linger in your mind for a second. God made promises to his people all the way back in Genesis. A few thousand years before they would find their fulfillment in Christ. But God was faithful then. And because he was faithful then, he is worthy to be trusted now. I don't know what you're dealing with. But God knows. God sees. Because of the cross, we can trust that God cares. God promised redemption for his people, and God went to the cross to ransom us from sin and death. If God did not care about you, there would be no cross. God was and is very concerned with keeping his promise to his people. Even the most minute details about sending a guy to go before Jesus to proclaim the message of the coming Messiah. God cares. And God still makes promises today, and God is still in the business of keeping his promises to his people. God's past faithfulness demands our present trust. Christian, Go to the Word. Meditate on God's promises. That, there, that this, life, this life is not all that there is for us. There are blessings ahead, and they may not look like what you think, or they may not look like what you think you need, but God who endured the cross for you knows what we need and will surely be faithful to continue and to complete the good work which he began in you. But you cannot properly endure trials without the word of God and without the people of God. So quit trying to do things in your own power and in your own strength. This will lead you nowhere good. Christ is inviting you into fellowship with him so you don't have to carry your burdens alone. You have his spirit and you have his bride to help you shoulder that load. There's this unfortunate trend taking place, and it's really common, especially in Western Protestant Christianity, that's just like, hey, it's just me and God and my Bible, or even worse, just me and God. Listen, understand something. If Christ has called you into fellowship with him, Christ has called you into fellowship with the body of Christ. It is okay to listen to sermons from other pastors and churches online or podcasts or whatever. It is not okay to make that your church experience. Community is such a gift to the Christian, and even the most mature and holy among us are still prone to wander away in sin. None of us has a 360 view of our life. 
And we need the accountability of other faithful men and women to point us back to Jesus. That's just a little bonus bacon for the day. That's not necessarily a part of this text, but it's still very true. So let's pick it up in verse 4. Let's get back to John the Baptist. Verse 4 says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And all of the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sin. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Chuck Swindoll calls John the Baptist a strange evangelist. I mean, if I were up here dressed like our buddy JB, eating locusts before you, y'all probably would think something was off. But here's this guy dressed very haggardly and eating a strange diet of bugs. He's in the wilderness, and our text says that all of the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him. They were all checking him out. Jerusalem's a 20-mile walk from where these events are taking place. This guy has something to offer, and people are hungry, and they're going to hear him. And verse 4 tells us that he is proclaiming a baptism of repentance and for forgiveness of sins. He is not baptizing people out of religious devotion. There's no indication that he's sprinkling infants. There's no indication that he's just baptizing people to baptize people. There is an acknowledgement that these folks are coming to him, realizing the depths of their sin and their depravity in their hearts, and they're confessing their sins, and they are repenting. This word repentance means literally to turn in the other direction. There's a difference between feeling guilty, like feeling guilty for something and repenting. These are two very different things. Feeling guilty is like, I've messed up. I'm feeling bad about it. You may apologize to the offended party, but nothing ever really changes. You may feel better about yourself. You may not. Repentance, on the other hand, is coming to God, acknowledging that you've sinned, and you're giving that over to him. And because it's his kindness that leads us to repentance, this changes everything. It impacts not only our behaviors, because behavior modification is not the goal of Christianity, but it also impacts our motives. It impacts the way we love people. It impacts the way we interact with people. It affects the way you handle your finances and your time and your resources. And it ultimately impacts your relationship with Christ. Listen, the cross tells us that we are all guilty. Because if we weren't, the cross wouldn't be necessary. If we weren't guilty, Jesus wouldn't have had to come and die for sins. But the cross also tells us we're loved. And the resurrection tells us that those whose faith is in Christ, they're no longer guilty. And man, if you're a Christian, that should liberate you from feelings of guilt and shame. The cross and the resurrection speak a better word for you. The cross speaks love and acceptance in Christ over you. 
If you're a Christian, the invitation for you is to lay down your guilt and your shame at the foot of the cross and walk forward in confidence and in freedom in who Christ is and who he says you are in him. The adverse is this. On the other hand, if you think you're in Christ and you feel no remorse or conviction for your sin, if you are not repenting of your sin before God, man, that is a dangerous place to be. Maybe you're like, hey man, I attend church some Sundays, maybe every Sunday. I've been baptized. I believe in God. That's good. But that's not what God wants. He wants your heart. He wants you before he wants your religious devotion. And man, if you're doing the stuff, but your heart looks nothing like what the Bible is calling you to, you may be planting your feet firmly into sinking sand. Notice in our text, John is not baptizing people to save them. He is baptizing people who are repentant and recognize their need for forgiveness. Baptism is a sign of redemption. You are identifying with Christ in his death and his burial when you are plunged under the water and you are identifying with Christ in his resurrection when you are raised back up out of the water. Baptism is a picture of the cross and the resurrection, and it's a proclamation that you're going to follow Christ, not a means of gaining favor and salvation. This baptism was in preparation for the completed work of forgiveness by Jesus on the cross. What John's activity teaches us and what the person and work of Jesus teaches us is that repentance precedes forgiveness. If you are unrepentant, listen to me. If you are unrepentant, you can't be forgiven. Let me explain what I mean. God can and will forgive whomever he so chooses. But an unrepentant heart screams of pride and self-preservation and self-justification. If you are unrepentant, you don't think you need to be saved from anything. If you don't repent and believe, you will not be saved. Paul says this in Romans 10.9. And think about your kids. Or if you are a kid, think about it like this. Or maybe you're guilty of this very same thing as an adult. I don't know. Think about it like this. If you get caught doing something and you apologize for it, and moments later you go back do, to doing the very same thing that you were just doing, are you really sorry? Or are you sorry you just got caught? There's a huge difference. Now, the danger here for me is to make you all feel terrible about messing up. Uh, if that were the case, there would be no hope. The cross, the cross has a word for that as well. The cross shows us that we can be forgiven even when we struggle, even when we fail, even when we do the stuff we swore we'd never do again. There's grace for that. But that grace comes as a result of a broken and a contrite heart. 
that grace is available for those who recognize that they need it. Jesus is not a cosmic genie bending to our every whim and granting us fire insurance so we can go on doing what we want to do. No, we see that hell is a very, very real reality. And those whose faith is not in Christ are destined for that eternal reality. But hear me. Jesus Christ, he's greater than all your sin. And is calling you to faith and to repentance. Because God is faithful to keep his promise, we know there's grace for our failures for those in Christ. We also know that because God is faithful to keep his promise, he will not leave the unrepentant guilty unpunished. Let me finish this text. Verses 7 and 8 says, And he preached, he being John the Baptist, saying, After me comes uh, he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. There are two things that we need to learn and apply from the life of John the Baptist. Number one, John the Baptist was faithful to God's calling on his life. Dr. Aiken says that John's message was popular with some and unpopular with others, but he preached the gospel of repentance and faith. That is a life marked by faithfulness to God. That, in the face of opposition, you can be certain that Christ is for you, and you can hold in your defense, you can be bold in your defense of the gospel. John lived by the mantra that all that matters, all that matters is a life that is pleasing to God. Like John, we are to be faithful to God's calling on our lives. Number two, John the Baptist was a humble recipient of God's grace. John knows what his role is in salvation history. John knows who number one is. John knows he's just a hype man for Jesus. In John 3.30, he says, He must increase, but I must decrease. Man, may that be the cry of our hearts. Oh, Jesus, may we decrease in our own view of ourselves and that you would increase in our hearts and in our lives. John says in verse 7, he's not even worthy to touch Jesus' sandals. That is a role that is traditionally reserved for Gentile slaves. And John is saying, I'm not even worthy of that. And in verse 8, John's saying, I'm baptizing you with water. This is a symbol of what's to come. Jesus is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It's the real thing. When you place your faith in Christ, his spirit dwells inside of you. John knows his place. May we too know our role. We are to be humble receivers of the grace of God so we can be humble servants to God. John the Baptist would not live to be 35 years old. He's ultimately arrested and beheaded But he never wavered in his confidence in who Jesus is and who God says he is. 
May we be willing to follow that example. As the Apostle Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the ministry of faithful men and women, Lord, that are recorded in your word for us to learn and glean from. Lord, I pray that we would, with our lives, say that you should increase, Lord, that, and we may decrease. Lord Jesus, teach us to be humble recipients of your grace, Lord, so we can be humble servants of you. Lord, thank you for your kindness that leads us to repentance and faith. Lord, I pray that you would be active this morning in calling people out of darkness and into light. Lord, your grace is needed. Lord, may we recognize your calling on our life, Lord. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do your work in here in the next few minutes. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to respond. Uh, there's some things we may need to deal with. I'm just going to ask each of you to examine your own hearts and your own lives in these next few moments. Have you placed your faith in Christ by repenting of your sins? If yes, if you have, are there any current sins or ongoing unrepentant sins that you need to confess? Man, don't rob God of his desire to forgive you. Don't rob yourself of his grace and mercy for you. Do you know that God is actually pleased to forgive us of our sins? Did you know that God wants to forgive us of our sins? Do you know that when we pray, God wants to grant our petitions when we pray in his will? You're not bothering God when you pray. You're not bothering God with your mess-ups and your mistakes. He's not angry with you. He looks on you with love because of the blood of Christ. There is freedom for you to boldly approach your Father who is working for your good. Listen, guilt and shame are not of Jesus. They're tools used by the enemy to keep you from enjoying Christ fully. So Christian, repent and believe. Man, if you haven't placed your faith in Christ, what's keeping you from that? What's keeping you from Jesus? If your life is not marked by any gospel fruits, maybe you need to consider doing something differently. If you're habitually messing up and you're not broken and contrite over it, man, consider Jesus who gave himself up willingly for you. Man, is your, marked, is your life marked by this cry to God to increase? If you've placed your faith and your hope in Christ and you're not walking in ongoing unrepentant sin, man, make that your prayer this morning. Oh, Jesus, increase in my life and help me to decrease. Let's let the Holy Spirit work in us this morning. I'm going to be in the back if you need to pray. Mark's over here if you need to pray. Um, yeah, let's just respond honestly to how the Holy Spirit is moving. Would you stand?